We are in our Advent series. And so uh, Advent is a time in the church where typically we have prepared our hearts or we work uh, on preparing our hearts to understand uh, the mystery of the incarnation and the beauty of the incarnation so that uh, we might better and more fully appreciate it. And so before we can understand the magnitude and the majesty of what it occurred in the incarnation, we have to come to grips with who it was that incarnated. And so today we're going to be looking uh, at what is probably the most concentrated section in the New Testament on the glories and the person of Christ, uh, both in his divinity and in his humanity. And so can I ask you to please stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's word. The Bible says that hearing or that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So let's all listen intently, listen intently together to God's inerrant word. This is Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your spirit that helps us to understand even in a small way, the magnitude of who you are, the magnitude of what you've done, Lord. And so we pray that as we study through and as we look through this passage, that you would give us a special sense of who you are and what you've done, Lord. Please give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I think it's fair to say that in, in some way, shape, or form, every, at least every religious pursuit, every spiritual path under the sun is looking somehow for a connection between heaven and earth. We all understand that we are earthbound and that there is a heaven that we are not connected to and we need some sort of connection, some sort of mediation, some sort of, some sort of intersection between our world and the next, whether that might be through our minds and rational thought, or that might be through meditation, trying to empty our minds to bring in people what believe uh, is an understanding of the cosmos, or spirit guides or mediums or the practice of religious ceremonies. As Matt was reading earlier today in the, in the law of, of all sorts of religious ceremonies and rites that have the appearance of religion, but lack its power. Uh, all of it is hard and exhausting work. And at the subconscious level, though, we all realize that we need some kind of mediation 
between heaven and earth. Well, the Bible says that all of those things fail to bring together God and man because none of those solutions are both God and man together or united. The context of the passage that I just read is in this this new Christian community in this Greek city-state of Colossae and they had... In, they had started to believe in a heresy. They started to believe in a wrong teaching that it was somehow the angelic majesties, the, the ranks and orders of angels that served mankind as the mediation point between heaven and earth, between God and man. And Paul is trying to explain to them through this passage and also to us uh, that they all fail and that they are placing their hope in the wrong thing. Because anything less than God does not have the power to be God or to save as God saves. And so Paul is telling us through this passage who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and how Jesus did it. And so the big idea, the thesis statement, if you will, the one thing that Paul wants us to understand, that the Holy Spirit wants us to understand above everything else through this passage, is that because Jesus is the intersection of God and man, who has reunited heaven and earth by the blood of his cross, we have power and freedom and security in God. Because Jesus is the intersection between man and God, who has reunited heaven and earth through the blood of his cross, we have power and freedom and security in God. And let's break that down one little section at a time. In the, uh, in the early 70s, Apple made history because uh, they made the power of computers and the power of, of computing available to everybody by developing a user interface. Up until that point, it was it was complex and esoteric computer languages only for the very, very smart. Uh, and Apple said no, they wanted to bring the power of, commuting, of computing to the hands of everybody. And so they developed this simple thing of a user interface that mediated all of that computer power into the hands of anyone. And that's what made Apple famous. And in a similar way, Paul is trying to tell us in this statement that in some ways that Jesus is the perfect user interface or the intersection of God and man. The person of Jesus, in other words, is the connecting point between the saving power of God and his creation. That Jesus alone is the mediator. And it's funny how one little misunderstanding can wreck an otherwise perfectly clear passage. If you look at uh, the Verse 15, right, at, the, at the, the second clause, it calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation. Now, if you just read that, you take firstborn at its literal meaning, it could mean that it's the firstborn son, and that's where that word comes from. In Israel, in the ancient Near East, the firstborn son was given all sorts of rights and responsibilities, and he would get twice the inheritance of everybody else. He would have the preeminent position and then rule over the whole family as that firstborn son. And so because that was such a common idea, that word firstborn became a title for anything that was preeminent in its rule and authority. And so that same word 
firstborn is also used in the Old Testament for the king. It's also used for, it can be used for children that don't have any other siblings. It can be used for, it's used for the prophets. It's used for Torah. Israel is God's firstborn son, meaning the preeminent one. And so when we look at this passage, it could be a couple of different things. Maybe Paul is saying that Jesus is the firstborn of creation or the first created entity that then created everything else. Or it could mean that Christ, by virtue of who he is and what he's done, is the preeminent one. He is the ruler of all the cosmos. Uh, And there was a little moment in church history during the third century when the bunch of people in the church bought the other idea. They believed that Jesus was the first created being who then God created all other things. And if you, if the Jehovah Witnesses come to your door today, that's the idea that they're going to try to sell you on, that Jesus, once you get down to the nitty gritty of who Jesus is and what he's come to do, that's the idea they're going to try and sell you on. It's not the worst idea they have, but it's a pretty significantly bad one. Um, and so how do we know? How do we know that which one of these Paul is using for Jesus? How do we know whether Paul is saying Jesus is the first created one who then through all other things are created or that he is the firstborn as a title, meaning the preeminent one over all creation? And the answer is through context. How is the, what is being said about Jesus in the rest of this passage? And then it also has to match up with what's said about Jesus in the rest of the New Testament. And that's how we understand how Paul is using this word. So let's just look real briefly at what's being said about Jesus. Look at verse 15. This is the first part. This, this, this passage is broken into two main sections. The first one is describing Jesus as Lord over all creation. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is what he's saying. In verse 15 and 17, he is saying that Jesus existed before the creation of time, space, and matter. And anything that exists before time is in eternity and therefore necessarily eternal. And so this is lining up, this use of firstborn is lining up with what John would say only begotten or the first or, or, or the, 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 the only unique son of God who is eternally generated from the Father. Theologians talk about the idea of the Son of God being eternally generating out of the Father, always having been generated, but having been so from eternity. And so he's described here as eternal. Second thing, in verse 16, it says that Jesus is then the instrumental cause or the creator of the entire universe. Instrumental meaning that God, in the, as Jesus, is being eternally generated as a son out of the Father, the source of all life, that he then it becomes the cause or the, the builder or the, the, of the universe, the, the cause, the part of the deity that creates all time and space and matter. So he's the creator God spoken of in Genesis 1. 
and that includes the visible world, what we can see. It includes the invisible realm, not just the, the heavenly realm, but also the in, uh, invisible uh, things like the, the foundations of the construction of the universe, like mathematics and the laws of logic and all the unseen realities that make the world what it is, but also including the unseen world of the angels. When he says thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, he's talking about the highest ranking order of angels. All of them were created by Jesus and for him, for his glory. And then, if that isn't proof enough, at verse 17 it says that Jesus is the sustainer of all things. In him, all things hold together. Meaning that it is Jesus who is constantly, by his constant power, sustaining and holding together the elemental forms of the universe. So that if he were to stop, molecules and all of the elements of creation would fly apart into nothingness, which incidentally means that people who deny Jesus are doing it with the power that he gives them to sustain and subsist in the world. This is who overshadowed the Virgin Mary and became a zygote and then an embryo and then a fetus and then a baby and was born into the world. That power. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 15 through 17 that in the same way and just as Jesus is Lord over creation, he's also Lord over the recreation. Look at verses 18 and 19. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness is that first entity that we just spoke of, the creator and the sustainer of the universe. The fullness of that divine power took on flesh and existed in the fullness of Jesus so that he was able to become the firstborn from the dead in his humanity, thus bringing victory over death through the cross for all of us. So, we look at the context. Does that sound like an angel dwelling in man? Or does that sound like deity dwelling in man? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is that Jesus is the preeminent Lord over both creation and over recreation. He is the eternal Son of God who became man for us in our salvation. That is who incarnated for you, for us. And so what does this mean for us? What's the big idea behind this? How, what do we learn? We learn that Jesus then, the person of Jesus, is the intersection between the the divine and mankind. In John, in the Gospel of John, we're talking about Jesus saying that I am the temple, I am the new, I am the true temple of God. He's saying that I am where the fullness of God dwells and that he then becomes the connection point or the conduit through which all the power of the divine for salvation flows out like living waters to his people. 
to mankind. And here's the thing, no one else is like that. That is a category of one. You ask yourself, why aren't there several ways to salvation? Because there's only one of these. And this is what it takes to bring salvation. Let me tell you something, this is important. Angels can serve you, but they cannot save you. And what that means for us is that if you are trusting in some other mediator, it will fail. And the Bible calls us to repent, which means to turn from what we're trusting in, turn from what we are trusting in for mediating heaven to us, and believe to trust in the one thing that absolutely can mediate between heaven and earth, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And that faith or that belief doesn't have to be strong. It just has to be in the right thing, right? I can have all the faith in the world that this thin ice is going to hold me up, but if I walk out on it, I'm going through. I can have a tiny little bit of faith that the Coronado Bridge will hold up as I walk over it to Coronado, and that tiny little bit of faith will get me to Coronado because my faith was placed It wasn't strong, it wasn't big, but it was in the right thing. So the first point that Paul wants to make to the Colossians and to us is to make sure you have the right mediator. Because Jesus is the intersection of God and man and he is the only one we have access to the saving power of God. Second point. Jesus has reunited heaven and earth. Look at verse 20. First part of verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. To reconcile all things. That sounds like a pretty inclusive deal at face value. And some have taken this verse to mean that somehow in the end... uh, everyone is going to be saved and all the angelic powers are going to be brought and reconciled back to God. The problem with that is there are too many other New Testament passages, Jesus himself saying otherwise. And so we need to understand this in a different way. And even if we look in real life, we can see that there are different ways of making peace, right? In World War II, for example, the Allies made peace in two ways. At Normandy, they stormed the beaches And the powers of good invaded that enemy-occupied territory of France and they conquered the enemy forces against their wills by superior power, thus making peace. But they also reconciled the people of France um, by reestablishing a right order over over that domain. And that's what we see happening here. Paul intentionally includes these hostile angelic powers. When he says thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, he's not talking about human reigns. He is talking about the unseen realm where there are hostile, rebellious, angelic, supernatural powers over the earth that are opposed to God. That's a heavy thing he's saying right there. And Paul intentionally includes them in the idea of this reconciliation 
even the aggressive forces that have undone right order in the universe. And he goes on in Colossians 2.15, just a few verses forward, by saying that through the cross, Jesus has disarmed the rulers and authorities, the angelic powers, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in his cross, essentially. At the end of World War II, the Axis powers had been disarmed. They'd been rendered powerless. The Nuremberg trials and the sentence of execution were still to come. But the immediate result of victory was that the enemy was forced to submit to a greater power against their will. And the same is with these hostile powers and all who are in allegiance with them. But there's also the category of those people who are being reconciled to God as the result of Jesus' victory over those hostile powers that are people that have been delivered from the evil rule of these evil powers over them and placed underneath the, the rule of good or the rule of the good king. When the, ex, when the allied powers came through France, they dislodged the evil powers that were over those people and freed them from the slavery to tyranny and brought a good, a good rule over them. And in fact, the verse right before our section today, Paul says this, that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And that's the picture that Paul is laying out for us, that we have been rescued from this rule of tyranny this is more than just Jesus lives in my heart. This is big cosmic picture of reconciliation where Jesus has reunited heaven and earth by repairing the breach that occurred at the fall. He's expelled the hostile powers and has both restored the right authority of God over both heaven and earth, bringing heaven and earth together under the righteous reign and rule of Christ. And he has brought us as his people into and under that righteous rule. That's an objective, cosmic thing that's happened, and we are the beneficiaries living under that. And so this tells us a couple things. First, it tells us that the, the incarnation was like Normandy. The incarnation was like the, the powers of good in the middle of the night invading into the realm of darkness to overcome and overtake them, just as the soldiers did at Normandy. But it also tells us this, that we stand in right relationship with God because what Jesus has accomplished for us. You know, a while ago, a few weeks ago in a sermon, I talked about, about staying in prayer, staying, abiding in Christ, even if it means abiding in Christ and praying through your sin. The worst thing you want to do is sin, and when you get caught up in some pattern of sin, to then close yourself off and run from God as if he doesn't want to hear from you. And so that, and that's a, that's a, that's a, a real principle that comes out of Psalm 32 and, and elsewhere in the Bible, but I was reading this this week and I'm thinking about it and just, and I'm thinking, you know, sin is, is, a, is a, 
It's on a continuum. It's on a sliding scale, right? It's not like we're ever not in sin in some way, in our think, what we think and say and do. We always at least have a corrupted heart. We may not be in some grievous pattern of sin. And what, but what happens is we, go into, we, we, have, we fall into some more grievous pattern of sin and we automatically think that our status with God is relying upon our performance that day or that week. But what this tells us is that our status with God our status of being under the righteous rule of Christ is a side effect, a byproduct of God's overarching cosmic plan for the universe to bring glory to himself and that we're there because of what Jesus has done for us. When you fall into some, if you, God forbid, fall into a pattern of sin, does that, does that make Satan, the, does that reestablish Satan as the ruler of the universe? No. He's still bound. So in the same way, this gives us all kinds of hope to realize that we have been liberated just like the Europeans were in World War II. We have been liberated from the power and the the reign of darkness and placed into the kingdom of Jesus because of what he's done for us. And we can rely on that thick and thin and trust that that is true for us. So, because Jesus has reunited heaven and earth, we have been given freedom from the power of sin. And third point, by the blood of his cross. How did Jesus do this? By the blood of his cross. Look at verse 20 again, the whole thing. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Did you know the cross did all that? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? You know, I like to point out as often as I can with glee to my agnostic friends that, like it or not, we still measure time and history by its relationship to Jesus. You can, change what the, uh, you can change what the abbreviations mean. You can change the idea of, of Anno Domini to whatever you want, to something else. But at the end of the day, we are still marking time by the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a fact. And in this passage, in this very short passage, we get a very big picture of what Jesus accomplished through his incarnation and subsequent death on the cross and why it is that it remains and will remain at the center point of all history. You know, again, in the big cosmic sense, as we've just seen the incarnation, the death on the cross, the resurrection of Christ has accomplished the defeat and the subjugation of hostile angelic powers and the return of the universe to the right order and rule of the king, the rightful king. And that's worth meditating on often. Whenever you think that your problems are overwhelming you, you can slow down for a minute and say, wow, that's big. It helps us to understand not only the majesty of who it was that came for us, but the magnitude 
of what happened and what we are part of because of that so that we can say, you can say, if you belong to Jesus, uh, in a very real sense, that the creator God of the universe sees you as so valuable that he was willing to subject himself to abject humiliation and poverty and suffering and abuse and even to be murdered by his own creatures to win you and to bring you to himself. That's worth meditating on. And it brings out the idea that even though the, there's this big, huge cosmic picture that's at play, there's also a very personal thing that's happening here. If the cross, if the incarnation and all that it accomplished, including the blood of his cross, is anything at all, it was a search and rescue mission to find us, to find you, and to bring you out of this and to bring you into a perfect world that's yet to come. We don't have it yet. But we can look at history and we can see in the past that Jesus has done what he said he's going to do. God does what he says he's going to do. And he says to us, I'm going to bring you home. And I've gone through a lot to make that happen. And we can trust that that promise is true. You can trust that that promise is true for you. And so, concluding, what do we understand from all this? You know, I was younger, I had the opportunity to meet um, and talk with a lot of people who participated in World War II. They were much older. Um, I sought them out. I was just so fascinated by what they had gone through, both soldiers that had fought through the European theater and the Pacific theater, and also survivors, people who had been liberated from France, and also I'd met and was able to talk with people who were liberated from Nazi Germany. And one thing that, that, that struck me, for the most part, most of them, they all had something in common. And that was that they had such an intimate and experiential knowledge of what had been accomplished in the liberation of Europe and the Pacific, of what they had been liberated from, that most of them went on to live lives of quiet gratitude and service. You know, they were called the greatest generation. Not everybody, but more than, more, than, more than should have been. A bigger percentage than anybody else were just totally cool to have their little house and their wife and their kids and to water the front yard and weed the garden and just be grateful, grateful. And that gratitude more than often played out in service. I love those people. I learned so much from knowing those people. And in my own life, in my own experience, when God rescued me out of abject terror, I was able to sit and be grateful. So grateful. What this teaches us is that in the same way, this reminds us that just as Jesus is the perfect image of God in man, that we, in the New Testament, teaches us that we are being restored in the image of God. And that by the Holy Spirit, that means that we are called to image, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are called to then image the God that we understand and to see that in, you know, 
what we see him doing in the capacity that we're able to, right? Nobody here is the God-man. Nobody is able to descend from heaven and save us from our sins. That is a very unique position. But we're being restored in holiness and in righteousness and then in the knowledge of God, Colossians 3.10, Ephesians 4.24. And that tells us that the image of God is to be growing in us and that we are to be about what Jesus was about. And that is why we exist as a church. We don't come here to be, have our ears tickled with these esoteric ideas of the cosmos. We come here to hear from God's word and to be impacted by his spirit making that word alive to our hearts who Jesus is and what he's done for us so that we might live lives of quiet gratitude and service around us. That's why we exist as a church. So what the incarnation teaches us is that just as Christ left the glories of heaven to find us, maybe we can leave the comforts of our life to go out and seek the lost and the hurting, and they are everywhere. Just as Jesus sacrificed himself to bring us life, maybe we can sacrifice ourselves and sacrifice some things, even maybe risk a little taste of poverty so that we can bring the comfort of this message of life to others. And just as Christ suffered humiliation to save us, maybe we should expect the same. And maybe we should rejoice in it every time, knowing that we have been counted worthy to suffer and be humiliated for his name. Because it won't be long. It's going to go fast. It's going to go fast. So let's make the time count because a life of hardship and sacrifice is better and more beautiful than a life of comfort. Amen? Because Jesus is the intersection of God and man who has reunited heaven and earth by the blood of the cross, we have power and freedom and security in God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all these things. As we approach the table tonight, Lord, the visible representation of everything that you've just taught us and reminded us of. We pray along with Paul that asking that we may be filled with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of you, fully pleasing to you and bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of you. We pray that being strengthened with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to you, Father, because you have qualified us to share in the inheritance of the sons and the saints in light. You have delivered us from the dominion of darkness and you have transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved son. And we love you and we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.